The Queen um, spoke about grief. She said, grief is the price we pay for love. And I don't know if you've been down to Westminster, I don't know if you've been down to be in the queue or see the queue, but the, the scale of the response to her death um, is, I think, a measure of how much she was loved, if grief is the price we pay for love. I'll leave it to the, the BBC to um, tell us over the coming weeks what that means about um, the monarchy as a whole. But what I want us to reflect on is about what we're going to be part of tomorrow, about the funeral and everything around it. In one sense, it's just a funeral for one individual, isn't it? But in some ways, this is a funeral for the whole nation that, in fact, the whole world has been invited to. And if you see all the, um, you know, the, the TV compounds, it looks like the whole world is going to be watching. And a, an astonishing number of people... Um, actually all across the world, as well as here, have been hit with real grief. And that's where I want to start. I've got two reflections for us tonight. Um, And the first, it starts in grief. So first, um, we are grieving a death tomorrow. Um, You'll probably have seen the condolence book um, just in the entrance of the church on the way in. Your last chance to sign that is tonight uh, on your way out. And... um, Sitting in the the entrance hall there and watching people come in, there was real painful grief going on for many. And I I doubt that many of those people had ever met the Queen. And if you'd seen those people um, on their way walking down the street, um, you wouldn't have been able to pick out who would be affected. Um, you wouldn't have said, oh, there's someone who looks you know, like maybe they're, they're going to be crying when they get in the building. Um, tall and short and young and old and male and female. Uh, people in tears about someone they'd never met and their death. And normally when someone dies, we say things to each other that are designed to make us feel better. But really, I think there are sort of Um, A sort of negotiation with death on a a kind of pricing scale of sadness. So we say things like, um, he had a full life. As if there is a a number of years or an amount of experience, that means that we shouldn't feel sad. Um, If that was really how it worked, well then the 8th of September 2022 should be one of the least sad deaths ever, shouldn't it? I'm 96 years old, 12 great-grandchildren, around 100 state visits, let alone all the others we said last week, 15 prime ministers and 750,000 handshakes. But what's been surprising and striking is that um, lots of people's first response has been shock, surprise that... um, what was really probably the most planned for, most anticipated, least surprising death that any of us will ever experience. But people have been shocked. I thought she was going to go on forever. And that um, shock, that grief, um, is actually something I'm giving thanks to God for. Um, I wasn't praying for it, um, but it would have been a good thing to pray for, for a a real and a profound experience of grief. 
Um, someone that um, I saw being interviewed, um, picked out of the crowd. Um, she said, it's like the nation's grandmother has died. So actually, this, this grief, it reminds us all of grief maybe for our own grandmother, our own mother, or someone else. And more than that, actually, the, the experience of COVID was an experience of death without funerals. Uh, we had these graphs in the paper every day of, of huge numbers of people dying, but without a way to make them personal or make them real. I um, went off to take my uncle's funeral during lockdown, and there were about a, a million COVID rules still in place. We couldn't eat together. Um, they gave us little chocolates on the way out of the funeral and said, please, will you all eat these at 10 p.m. tonight, uh, as if we were together And even at that funeral, the undertaker, he said it was the first church funeral he'd taken since COVID started. And we were well over a year in at that point. So um, just all over the country, uh, in communities, flats and houses going dark as people died, but without the chance to get together and to grieve. Um, And grief is um, terrible and painful and debilitating, but the absence of grief is worse. Uh, Grief is the price we pay for love. And sometimes um, sort of well-meaning funeral poetry sometimes tells people, don't be sad. Um, Actually, I can think of a funeral I went to that was, um, was a real shock. Um, It was the most shocking funeral, in fact, the saddest funeral I've ever been to. But the funeral itself was was utterly, thoroughly dishonest about how we should feel. Don't be sad. Um, I'm not sure that's even really human as a response, and it certainly isn't what the Bible says about death. So the the verses that um, Chloe read for us, They talk about death as an enemy. Um, Death is imagined at the end of the chapter like a hideous scorpion uh, made dangerous by the the poisonous sting of death. Sorry, poisonous sting of sin. That's what gives death his power. Um, The chapter that we've got open, it's page 1156. If you've closed it, it's from the New Testament. It's written about 15 years after Jesus' death, but the chapter is full of images taken from the the very first chapter of the whole Bible, written well over a thousand years earlier, the account of creation and how good creation is, how good this world is. Human beings are meant to live. Life is good. And health and strength is good. And death is alien and miserable. And corruption and weakness and decay, they are bad. So every death is a defeat by an enemy. One more notch on the scythe. And uh, the evening that the, the Queen died, I went down to Buckingham Palace, and there wasn't very much to see at that point. Um, flowers were arriving. I didn't see any Paddington bears, but I'm sure they were on their way. But what you could see was the flag. See the flag at half-mast. 
And um, you may know that half-mast is not actually half-mast at all. You don't bring the flag down halfway. You, you bring it down just far enough to fit another flag over the top. Um, and that is a, a military reference. It's about capture. It's um, like when the enemy captures a ship at sea or a castle on land. And they want their army to know that they have won. Uh, no need to keep pushing. We've won. Victory. So you, you bring down the flag and then you put it back up again. But you put your flag over the top. Their flag. Your flag. To say they lost. We won. Captured. So half-mast, it means that we, we bring the, the flag down of a, a living, breathing human being, and then we put it up again, but with the invisible flag of death over the top. Death has won again. Another human life captured. And the, um, the win-loss statistics are looking good for death every time. No matter how much we love them, uh, without really seeming to care whether the life has been full or not, death is an enemy, and with the, the death of the queen, we're all looking death in the face, and potentially our own deaths in the face at the moment. But um, in the Bible, Christians are told not to grieve like other people. So we do grieve. Dishonest and subhuman, not to grieve. We must grieve because someone we love is no longer with us and we miss them. But we do not grieve like other people, like people who have no hope, the verse says. And Her Majesty had put her faith publicly in her King Jesus. Seems that for her that was um, lifelong. But it also seems that she made a decision in about the year 2000 to tell us about it more, to speak more openly, more directly about Jesus, her Lord. Her, um, her Christmas broadcast, they weren't just one more speech from a politician. They were the speeches she wrote herself, where she was free to say what she believed. And in 2011, she said this, said, God sent into the world a unique person, Neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a saviour with the power to forgive. The, the sting of death is sin. And uh, our chapter, verse 3, says Jesus died for our sins. Then he was buried in death, verse 4. And then he was raised on the third day. And the, the chapter here, it includes a list of the people who met him after he had died. And when this was written, um, those people, they were still alive and accessible. This is good eyewitness testimony to a real world event, an event where King Jesus defeated death. Um, and he didn't just do it for himself, not just so we could say, well done, Jesus. So the, the win-loss score would be, you know, 50 billion to death and one to human beings. Jesus rose, it says, as part of a bigger harvest 
Um, Look at verse 20. It's the first verse that Chloe read for us. And the image there, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Meaning that um, those who die trusting in Jesus, they've fallen asleep, but they have fallen asleep in Jesus, included in him. And the one resurrection that was seen by Peter and James and Paul and 500 others, that was not just a one-off. That was the first taste, the first ripe piece of fruit out of a harvest that is going to follow on inevitably afterwards. And uh, one of the arguments here in these verses, this is a wonderful, deep, rich chapter of the Bible, but one of the arguments is that the resurrection of Christians is necessary to the victory of Jesus. So in verse 25, we're told Jesus is a king who must have all of the enemies under his feet. He must win. And the last enemy, verse 26, is death. And the the thing that puts death on the floor and Jesus standing on him is dead Christians in new resurrection, indestructible bodies. Jesus has not won until you and I have indestructible bodies in the future, until we are a new creation, a second order of humanity, like Jesus Christ, in the same way that we have been like Adam with these bodies that break and die. And then we tend, I think, to think of life after death as something nice that Jesus might do for us if he's in a good mood. But Paul, who um, wrote this chapter as someone whose life was changed utterly by meeting Jesus after Jesus' death, Paul says, no, raising us as physical, created, indestructible bodies, that is essential for Jesus if he is going to be king of the universe and king of all. So I want to change that first heading, if I can. Um, We are grieving a death, but really this is a different sort of grief. This is grief after Jesus defeated death. It's a different kind of grief. Which is why, why Christians, we can be honest about the pain at a funeral, but we can also be cheerful at the same time and full of hope. Because belief in Jesus now unites you to him. And so it guarantees us a physical resurrection on the day of his return. Um, I don't know about you, but for the, um, the week uh, after the Queen died, I just found myself humming God Save the Queen uh, everywhere I went. I think because it, it was her song, wasn't it? Um, and I think it'll take quite a while before um, we can um, sing King, unless we really, really think about it. In my mum's hometown, um, the mayor um, had to do that proclamation about the new king, and he, um, he did it all fine, and he got through all the long words and the, the proclamation, and then he sort of tripped up at the, the last bit, where he said, three cheers for his majesty, the queen. <laughs> um, and that didn't really work. God, save the queen. That is the one thing we do not need to sing now. Um, She had a lifelong, solid trust in her saviour who has saved her. 
And she is with him now, the king who defeated death. So we grieve, but we grieve differently. We grieve like those who have hope. Okay, that's our first reflection. I'm going to spend a bit less time on our second one because we spoke about some of this last week. Um, Second one, we have lost an example. Now, I um, can't tell from here what your personal feelings are about the British Queen. Um, But as a church here at All Souls, um, the Queen was supreme governor of the denomination. And actually, the crown is the patron of this church here at All Souls, which means um, I can say just about, truthfully, that the Queen appointed me. Uh, to come here as rector. I didn't actually meet her, you need to understand that. The work was done by someone else, by a very wise and experienced civil servant called Helen. Um, but my, um, my name, it did have to go across Boris Johnson's desk. And um, Helen, she got me to write something for the Queen to read about me. Um, said the Queen, she likes to know about her vicars. Slightly, you know, terrifying, given that the Queen, you know, MI5 would presumably do whatever she really wanted to know about me. But um, so as a church, um, we have lost a leader. And above all, we've lost an example. And we spoke last week about how directly the Queen herself, she connected her life choices to the example of Jesus dying on the cross. Um, Christmas 2012, we quoted last week, God sent his only son to serve, not to be served, she said. He restored love and service to the center of our lives in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the queen, she swore to devote herself to service, servanthood. My whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service. And last week we spoke a bit, I guess, about what we have to do in order to live like that. What we'd have to do to ourselves uh, is kind of what we said, make our bodies our slaves. But tonight with 1 Corinthians 15 open, I want to speak a bit about what you have to believe to live like that. So please look at the, the last verse in the chapter, verse 58. Um, it's a verse I've used at quite a few funerals, including of my own family, where the person who had died was about the same age as the queen. In some ways, I think this verse captures what used to be normal and maybe what we have lost. So verse 58, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Um, One occasion, I read that to my cousin after the death of my uncle, his father, read in the verse, he said, that's it, that's him. You've described him. Stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, your labor in the Lord. And then we said last week, it's become, I think, clearer and clearer that this is what the Queen was doing. Um, Early on in her life, maybe you think she just enjoys shaking hands and waving. Maybe that's the thing she likes to do. But two days before her death, we said last week, at the age of 96, 
after 70 years of hard labor, visibly unwell, and she is on her feet and smiling and installing a new prime minister when nobody would have begrudged her a day off. No one would have begrudged her a chance to stop. Firm and immovable and working, fully given to this service until the end, until death. But did you see in the verse the word therefore at the beginning and the word because? This life, it comes out of a belief that labor is not in vain, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain, not waste it. And why believe that? Well, the therefore, at the beginning, it drives us back into what we've just been saying uh, under Reflection 1, the rest of the chapter, back into the defeat of death by Jesus. See, the, the generation passing with the Queen, they are, in general... Unusually hardworking, I think. Unusually service-oriented. And unusually certain about things. Uh, My uncles, again, who died in their 90s, they said things like, life after death is certain. Or um, some things in life are just certain. Jesus, he is absolutely reliable. And we, in the the generations that have followed, we normally think of that certainty as a weakness, as a kind of closed-mindedness. But you have to acknowledge it makes a difference when it comes to a funeral and a death, your own death, to approach it certain about what is the other side of the door. And actually, there is nothing... um, 1920s or 1930s about belief in the resurrection or about certainty that you can build a life on. That faith, that attitude, it's available to all of us and that the life that it generates could be ours as well. This is certainty about something true, something based on hard and real evidence. And that's not closed-minded, What is that? That's just thought and knowledge, wisdom, reason. So actually I want to change our second heading as well. Uh, We've lost her example, but we can share her belief and follow her as she followed Christ. So this is about the servant life because of tomorrow. Um, We can live that servant life if we share this belief. And I've called it there a belief in tomorrow, which is because of something that's in verse 32. Um, So just um, we'll start at verse 30, come back across the page to where Paul is talking about his own death, discussing death. He says, verse 30, that he lives a life of danger and persecution. Verse 31, he says, I face death every day. And then in 32, he asks, what is it that would put a human being into a Roman arena for a fight with a wild beast if you didn't have to? And would you do that for just normal human hopes? No, because you would gain nothing. You know, a well-fed lion, um, that is not sufficient motivation for the servant life. 
And if you are not certain about what comes after death, which would be most of the people in our country now, most of the people around the world, if you're not certain about what comes after death, then verse 32 tells you how you should live. It says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So in the um, funeral tomorrow, as you're watching the funeral, um, that is the other option. As we reflect on the woman who has died, the other option is the life in verse 32. You could live the way she did, firm, immovable, fully given over to service until death. Or you could look at death coming down the track towards you and decide to grab as much of life now as you possibly can. Eat and drink and all the rest because we just don't know how much of life we've got left. Um, In particular, in this chapter, this is how you will live if you don't believe in the dead raised, meaning raised with new bodies, raised in a new creation. Um, And that is actually the, the other cruelty, I think, of most funerals. Um, most funerals were offered a kind of spiritual survival after death, like our um, our consciousness has um, well literally been uploaded into a cloud, and of a place where we can exist but not live. Human life in the Bible is about bodies, bodies united to spirits and minds. It's about physical creation. It doesn't actually matter to me much if my emotions will go on or my memories. If my body has no future, then I still need to eat and drink as if there is no tomorrow. Death without concrete physical hope is necessarily corrupting and degrading. It will necessarily drive me towards a selfish way to live. But a certainty about physical resurrection after death, that is liberating. means you can believe in tomorrow, in an everlasting tomorrow of physical enjoyment and activity and life. And if you believe that, then you're free to die every day here in this decaying world, in these decaying bodies. And that's the connection to the the series that we've paused. It's the connection to chapters 8 to 10. And what this Bible letter does is it works through all of the problems that were in that church, and there were a lot. So it takes 14 chapters to do the problems, and then the answer is chapter 15, where we are tonight. And I want us, I pray, I would love us to be the way Paul is calling us to be, Love us to be a church family here where we give up our freedoms and our rights for each other. And if you're um, here tonight as your first time in church or if you're uh, visiting or you're in London and you're looking for a church, I hope that would be attractive. We'd want to, hope to do that for you. But it's also a big ask, isn't it? Come and die every day for these people. Serve them. So I'm going to pray for us now and pray for us and the watching world watching that funeral as we grieve tomorrow. 
Um, And I'll pray for us first that we'll grieve like those who believe Jesus defeated death. And then second, I'll pray that we will live like those who believe in tomorrow, uh, live the sacrificial life. So if the musicians want to come up, because after that, we're going to sing Love Divine. We're going to sing about the love of Jesus. But let's pray. Our Father, thank you that you did send your son, not as a philosopher, not as a general, but as a saviour, and that in his death and resurrection, the great enemy is defeated. And that if we believe in him, we have a tomorrow, a secure and certain hope. So we pray, Father, that you would help us to grieve, but to grieve like those who have that hope, and then to live, and to live like those who know that nothing we give up in this physical world is wasted because we have that great physical concrete creation hope waiting for us when we see Jesus again. And we ask these things for his glory. Amen.